0: Let's uh, open a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for its ministry to us, because what you've said about it is it's living and active. We do invite, Lord, the living and active Word of God into our lives today for purposes of encouragement, correction. We know that that ministry can't be executed the way you want it to be executed in all of its fullness without the illuminating ministry of the Spirit of God. So in preparation for that ministry, both in Sunday school and in the main service that follows, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you not to restore um, position, but to restore broken fellowship if necessary. I do ask, Lord, that the Spirit will be with us as we study your Word today in both Sunday school and, as I said before, the main service that follows. We do ask, Lord, that we would leave here changed people, either through salvation or maybe growth or maybe an understanding that we didn't have, maybe during the fellowship time a relationship we didn't have before. But we do ask that you would do this great work, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. All right. Well, if you could take your Bibles and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Um, this is part four, uh, sort of in a mini-series focusing on this verse here, the apostasia. And we're bringing it up because it's kind of um, along the way in our verse-by-verse study through the epistle of Second Thessalonians. Spending some time on it because it's one of the most controversial <clears throat> and debated um, verses maybe in the entire Bible. Paul the Apostle writes and he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that's the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy, which is an English translation of the Greek noun apostasia, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul the apostle had been forced out of Thessalonica into Corinth. And a short time later from Corinth, he writes to the church that he had planted there in Thessalonica. And the reason he's writing to them is a problem has surfaced. That problem is described in the prior verse. It says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul had taught them that they would not see the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. And they had just received a letter from Paul, allegedly. It really wasn't from Paul. It was a forgery. But they didn't know it was a forgery. That, no, what I said to you before is wrong. You're not going to escape the day of the Lord. In fact, you're in it right now. So this explains why Paul does what he does in verses 3-12. through he's sort of, um, and I I use the word before concurrently, and that's in hindsight, that may not be the best word used to describe it, but what he's doing in verses 3 through 12 is he's tracing the day of the Lord, the events that are going to happen in the day of the Lord. And he mentions five events, the apostasy, the coming of the Antichrist, the removal of the restrainer the destruction of the Antichrist's followers after the Antichrist himself is destroyed. So he's giving all of these tribulation period events, which are going to be encapsulated in a seven-year time period. And his, his only point is you haven't seen any of these things happen. So because none of these things happen, are happening... Uh, everybody take a deep breath because you're not in the tribulation period. So the very first thing he describes is something called the apostasia or the apostasy. He says the apostasy comes first. And as we've tried to explain, there are basically two views to this. One view is is Paul here in verse 3 is talking about a departure from the word A secondary view, which is the view I represent, is no, he's not saying it's a departure from the word, he's saying it's a departure from the world. So, concerning that first view, um, I mean, is it an apostasy of the church, is it, an apostasy of the world, is it an apostasy of Israel? We kind of went through those. Those are the different directions people go with this. And in our first lesson on this, we're now on lesson four. You know, we basically said those are really not the most satisfying options. So that leaves option number two, that it's actually a departure from the world, meaning that the apostasia is a synonym, as Paul is using this word, of the rapture. And the reason this is a big deal is if he is using the word apostasia as a synonym for the rapture, then he's just nailed down the pre-tribulational rapture. Because people say this a lot. They say, give me one verse that supports the pre-tribulational rapture. And my response is, okay, well, first you give me one verse that supports the Trinity. Well, I can't do that. Okay, well, then why are you forcing me to, to adhere to a set of rules that you can't follow, defending basic Christianity? Because there's not one verse that says God is triune and fleshes out the Trinity. You have to combine Scripture with Scripture. That's how the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture works. You have to do an inquiry into all of the Bible to figure it out, which is not um, unearthing, because that's what you do with any other doctrine in the Bible. However, if this uh, departure from the world is correct, well we just have, there's your one verse right there. Just gave it to you. The departure from the world happens first. So all of a sudden, voila, pre-tribulationalism, the idea that the church will not go into the tribulation has its one verse. Everybody says we need to have to believe the doctrine, even though I don't think you have to have one verse alone to believe the doctrine. But even so, if it's the departure from the world, then there's your one verse. So what has happened is there's almost a... Uh, hysterical, that's the only way I can describe it as I've sort of gotten into this, A hysterical attempt to bury this view and to not let it see the light of day. Because if this view is correct, then the top view in this graphic is the correct view. The rapture happens first. It will happen before the events of the tribulation period transpire. So with all of that being said, what I was doing in subsequent lessons and the first three lessons is I was trying to develop ten reasons why I think the view that the apostasia, the departure from the world, not the word, but the world, is the correct view. The first reason is there have always been doctrinal departures. So what would yet another prediction of a doctrinal departure signal, signal that the Thessalonians were in the tribulation period. The second reason is Second Thessalonians was a very early letter where Paul was not dealing with departures from the word in terms of a prediction. He deals with that later in his writings, but not early on. So what people do is they try to force Paul to deal with a topic he's not dealing with. Number three, it doesn't just say apostasia, departure. It says the departure. There's a definite article in front of the word departure. There's also a definite article in front of the Antichrist. So just as the Antichrist is going to come upon the scene fast, this departure is going to happen just that fast. And that doesn't fit a doctrinal departure understanding because doctrinal departures take time. This is not describing some lengthy time where air is let out of a balloon slowly. It's describing something that happens instantaneously. Maybe maybe a balloon is not the best example. Let out of a tire, slowly. And then number four, being one of the most important, is I tried to show that the noun can refer to a physical departure. If you go back and listen to the last two lessons, the verb form, the common root, from that common root comes the noun and the verb. The verb form, 80% of the time, means physical departure. So since both the noun and the verb, you have to go back to the last two lessons to pick that up, but since the noun and the verb can both refer to a physical departure or a spiritual departure, because the, the noun and the verb can go either direction, on what basis do we make our determination that it's physical and not spiritual? Anybody know? Start with a C. Context. Uh, The the three rules of real estate are location, location, location. The three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. So I've got a word that can go multiple directions. So in making a decision regarding what meaning to supply, I have to build my case from the context of the passage, not run over out, out into Acts 21, verse 21. And read that back into Second Thessalonians 2, which is what people do. Because Acts 21.21, which is the only other time that the noun apostasia is used in the whole New Testament, as I tried to show last time, represents a totally different context. The issue is not what the word means there, it's what does it mean here. And by the way, in Acts 21, 21, um, the definite article is not even used. It just says apostasy. Here, Paul says the apostasy. So this takes us to number six. I have this uh, catalog in a book, a little booklet I wrote called The Falling Away. Um, we were supposed to have those for you guys today. Do we have any of those, Brother Jim, for folks? Um, instead of... Uh, distributing them now, Uh, maybe you could have them set up on the way out where people could get them. So I want to make sure everybody gets one of these. But this takes us now to number six, and here we're looking at the context. Um, The extended context favors the physical departure view. And what do I mean by extended context? I'm looking at the two Thessalonian letters, first Thessalonians, excuse me, and second Thessalonians together. That's what I mean by extended context. And the reason I'm looking at these two letters together to develop the context of second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three A, is not only were these books written together from Corinth, but there is an extremely short period of time in between the two books. He probably wrote those two books back to back within six months to a year, from the same place to the exact same people, uh, the Thessalonians, the Christians in Thessalonica. And so when you put the two books together, you can clearly see what's on Paul's mind. What is on Paul's mind is not some sort of prediction about the last day's doctrinal departure of the church, but what is on his mind, obviously, is the return of Jesus. And so since that is the basic context of the two Thessalonian books written by the same man, from the same place, Corinth, to the same people, the Thessalonians, written in close proximity to each other, since that is what is on Paul's mind, and since the noun can be either physical or doctrinal, since it can refer to either a departure from the word or departure from the world, I'm going to supply the meaning that fits the context, and the context is the return of Jesus. So let me show you what I mean. Do you remember when we were going through first Thessalonians? Was that what ten years ago or something? Remember we made this point. Every chapter ends with a reference to what the return of Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse ten. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So Paul here in this book is not talking about in the end the church is going to run off the rails doctrinally. This is early in his ministry where he's dealing with the return of Jesus. And then you go over to first Thessalonians two, nineteen and twenty, and you see the same same emphasis. End of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus? 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. At his, what's the next word? Coming. And then you go to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And you look at verse 13 so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. So he ends chapter 3 with a reference to the return of Christ. Then you get to the end of chapter 4, and that's probably his most graphic uh, rapture passage For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's the rapture. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So chapter 4 ends just like the other chapters with a reference to the return of Christ. And then you go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and he does the exact same thing. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Put yourself in Paul's shoes to figure this out. He's writing to the same people uh, in sort of a back-to-back fashion, no more than six months to a year between the two letters. He's writing from the exact same place. And he's talking about in every single chapter in the first book, the coming of Jesus. That's what I mean by the extended context. So if the word apostasia can mean departure from the word and it can also mean departure from the world, depending on the context, obviously the meaning I'm going to supply to that word is going to have to fit the context. The context of these two books is the rapture. So therefore, that's one. Of the, that's a key reason why I think the apostasia is a departure from the world, a synonym for the rapture, and not some sort of prediction about the last day's apostasy of the church. All I'm doing is figuring out the different ways the word can be used, and I'm supplying the meaning of the word based on its context. It's just like the word apple. Which can mean many different things. It can mean a computer. It can mean the pupil of one's eye. It could mean New York City. It could mean a piece of fruit. So when a word like that can have different meanings, if you receive an email from your IT guy about the need for a computer, you know, I don't sub when I see the word Apple. I don't substitute my wife's shopping list into that. You see that? Even though even though apple can legitimately mean a piece of fruit somewhere else, that's not what it means here. That's all I'm doing with apostasia. And you know, this is just basic language. You guys in regular language do this all of the time without even thinking about it, and that's what you're doing with Bible study. Which takes to us to a seventh reason why I think the, the physical departure view works is not only do, does the extended context favor the physical departure view, but so does the immediate context. And when I mean immediate context, I mean this specific paragraph here. Extended context, I'm looking at both Thessalonian books. Immediate context, I'm just focused on this paragraph When you read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about two other times in this context is the rapture. In fact, go back to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, and let me show you how the immediate context favors the physical departure view. Notice verse 1. What is he even talking about? Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What what is he dealing with here? He's dealing with the rapture. That's how this chapter starts. They have questions about the rapture. So if that's the context, is it really that big of a deal? to assume that the apostasia is also the rapture, when that word can mean that in some contexts. Go down, if you could, to verses 6 and 7 for a minute. Let me show you another time. In this same context, he's dealing with the rapture. And this is where he starts to talk about the restrainer. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, you know what... He's talking about the Antichrist. He's explaining why the Antichrist is not here right now. And these are good verses for us because everybody thinks the Antichrist is here. It's got to be Bill Gates or somebody. And I've said this before. Bill Gates is mentioned in the Bible. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So about as close as you can get to Bill Gates. But, you know, there's always all this speculation. The Antichrist is this guy's the Antichrist, that guy's the Antichrist. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. I mean, they thought they were in the tribulation period. They were probably fingering Roman emperors as potential candidates for the Antichrist. This is where Paul explains the Antichrist cannot be, he cannot make his debut onto the world scene because something is hindering him. He says in verses 6 and 7, you know what restrains him. Now, that's the Greek participle there, neuter, translated restrain. You know what restrains him now so that in his time, Antichrist time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world because the spirit of the Antichrist precedes the Antichrist. But the Antichrist hasn't made his debut yet. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, same uh, Greek participle, but it's kind of interesting, he uses the neuter gender in verse 6 and the masculine gender in verse 7. He switches genders in between verses 6 and 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the big discussion on the, these verses is who in the world is the restrainer? A lot of people say there's, the restrainer is Rome. The problem with that is it was Rome that was throwing Christians to the lion's den So Rome wasn't doing a very good job restraining evil. Um, And by the way, Rome is gone and the restraint is still here. Other people say, no, the restrainer is the devil. But that would make the devil fight against the devil, right? Because the Antichrist is the devil's masterpiece. And Jesus in Matthew 12 said, a house divided against itself cannot... Cannot stand. So that interpretation doesn't work. A lot of people from Romans 13, where it talks about how the government bears the sword, they argue that the restrainer is the government. But that interpretation doesn't work because go to a communist country (laughs) or an Islamic country and you will not find the government restraining evil. You'll find that the evil is coming from the government. Other people are saying the restrainer is Michael the archangel, but that interpretation really doesn't work because Jude verse 9 indicates that Michael the archangel doesn't like to fight Satan openly. He just says to Satan, may the Lord rebuke you. And the restrainer here is fighting Satan openly by holding back Satan's man of the hour. So I believe that the right definition of the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is being identified by his ministry of restraining evil. Well, why doesn't Paul just come out and say the Holy Spirit? Well, if you look at verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is a review course. By the time, by the time we read this letter, he's reviewing information that he's already rolled out. And any teacher knows that when you review for the test, you don't reteach all the material. Sometimes you feel like you need to, but By the time you get to the final and you're reviewing for the final, the assumption is the students have a certain level of understanding. Um, So it's not necessary to to re-explain every little detail. So that's why he doesn't use the phrase Holy Spirit. They already knew it was the Holy Spirit. He's just identifying the Spirit by his unique ministry of restraining evil. So who is the Restrainer? The Restrainer is the eternally existent third member of the Godhead. God the Holy Spirit. The eternally existent third member of the Trinity. A God the Holy Spirit. Now let me give you three reasons why I think the Restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit as God is omnipotent meaning all powerful and you would need something all powerful to hold back Satan's man of the hour because when Satan's man of the hour makes his debut he will be the perfect expression of Satan himself in verse 9 which comes a couple of verses later Paul says that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all, see that, all power, signs, and false wonders. So this is going to be, this Antichrist, when he shows up, is going to be a satanic masterpiece. He's not going to be, you know, like political leaders we see today where they get confused and they they walk off the stage in the middle of the event and all these kinds of things. I mean, <clears throat> I mean this guy is going to be a uh he's going to be a master at everything he does. intellect, um military expertise, etc. and he'll be the perfect expression of Satan. Now, who is the only entity that can stop that? Because what we're reading here is the spirit is at work hindering that. Michael could not stop that. Only God could stop it, and so whoever this restrainer is, this restrainer has to be has to have the force of omnipotence, all power to hold to actively for two thousand years, hold back Satan's man of the hour. Um, a second reason why I think this uh, restrainer is the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit has ministries in the church. He has ministries in the believer. But he also has a ministry in the unsaved world. You remember what he was doing in the days of Noah. He was striving with man. Now that's not a ministry to the saved. That's a ministry to the unsaved. Genesis 6 verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said, this is just prior to the the, um, flood, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So the spirit was active in the world. Right now, as I speak, the Holy Spirit is active in the world. Is he active in the church? Yes. Is he active in the Christian? Yes. Is he also active in the world? Yes. He is busy very similar to what he was doing pre-flood of convicting the world, that's everybody, not just the Christian, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said that that ministry would start soon when he left the earth. He says, I tell you the truth, this is to the disciples who were panicked about him leaving. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, paraclete, the one who comes alongside to assist, the Holy Spirit, in other words, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. That's everybody, right? The world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, Greek noun, hamartia, singular. Concerning sin, because they, that's the world, do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is being judged. Now, side note, as you evangelize to loss, those are the three things to focus on. Because that's what the Spirit is currently convicting the world of. If you start talking about something unrelated to these things, then you're really doing evangelism independent of what the Spirit of God is already doing to unsaved people. He is convicting them of sin because of unbelief. You keep focusing over and over again on their unbelief. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. You keep focusing over and over again on the fact that they, the unsaved person, needs the transferred righteousness of Jesus. Because self-righteousness is not going to get the job done. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You focus on the fact that if you don't receive this, (laughs) there's there's a future judgment coming. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer called this true evangelism. Evangelism that bears fruit because it cooperates with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in the hearts of people or the lives of people. The problem today is we've got all of our evangelistic manuals all written, most of which have absolutely nothing to do with this. It's about Jesus giving you your best life now or... Telling people they have to do a bunch of good works or whatever. That's why we're pretty particular about the tracks we put out in the back there. Because we want the tracks that you use to cooperate with the Spirit of God is already doing in the lives of people. True evangelism. All of that to say that the Spirit of God obviously has a role in the world. So if the Spirit of God has a ministry in the world, is it too far of a stretch to believe that the holy spirit is doing something else in the world what else is he doing in the world he's he's got his hand out and he's stopping satan from unleashing the antichrist and he's been doing that ministry as far as i can tell for 2000 years The third reason why I think that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit view handles well the switch in gender from the neuter to the masculine. Remember in Greek I showed this to you? There's a restrainer at work in the world. The first time Paul uses the participle restrainer, he uses the neuter gender. The second time he uses the participle restrainer, he uses the masculine gender. That is a beautiful description of the Holy Spirit because the Greek noun for spirit is pneuma, which is a neuter noun. But at the same time, Jesus in the upper room frequently referred to the Holy Spirit with the masculine pronoun he. He said in John 14, 16, and 17, I ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he, that's the Spirit, may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. See the ministry of the Spirit of truth? What's his ministry? Truth. What's his ministry here? Restraint. Restraint. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know, uh, excuse me, it it does not see him or know him. But then he turns to his disciples and he says, but you know him because he abides with you. He's active in the prior dispensation. It's just this, as we move into the church age, his ministry will shift where he will be in you. For how long? The next verse says forever. And then we've already read John sixteen, seven through 11. It's to your advantage I go away. When I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So pneuma, Greek noun for spirit, neuter, but Jesus also called the Spirit he or him over and over again. So when Paul uses this participle restrainer and he shifts from the neuter to the masculine, I can't think of a better description of the Holy Spirit than that. I mean, the Rome view wouldn't handle the switch in gender. The Michael the Archangel view wouldn't handle the switch in gender. The Satan view wouldn't handle... Well, the switch in gender, but the spirit view, boy, that that fits it perfectly. So what I'm seeing are basically three reasons why the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The spirit is omnipotent and he alone could hold back Satan's masterpiece. The Holy Spirit is active in the world. Pre-flood, post Beginning of the church age, why can't he be active with another ministry, holding back restraint? And then you've got a wonderful handling of the switch from the neuter to the masculine. Now, follow me on this. If the restrainer is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is holding back the Antichrist as we speak, And if this restrainer is, in fact, the omnipotent Holy Spirit, can I just ask a simple question? Where is the Holy Spirit currently residing? He lives inside the individual Christian, doesn't he? How do we know that? Well, in the prior age, this was common of the Spirit's involvement. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. Not in David. Upon David. See that? From that day forward, and Samuel arose and went off to Ramah, Now, the Spirit of the Lord did what related to Saul? Departed from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord terrorized him. That's how the Spirit worked in the prior age. came upon people for a specific task, and then could leave people. Jesus, when he started to articulate the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he announced a change of rules. He said in the upper room, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Boy, that sure is different than um, what Saul experienced, what Samson experienced. The Spirit left them. But in our age, the Spirit can't leave you. Once you're a Christian, you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, we can grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, resist the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit in this age to the Christian can never say, see you later, which is sort of comforting, isn't it? That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you, and will be, day of Pentecost, forward, in you. Prior age, the Spirit of God is upon people. This age, He's in people. Prior age, the Spirit of God could leave people. In this age, He's with the child of God forever. That's where the Holy Spirit lives. So if the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist and the Restrainer is the Omnipotent Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit permanently indwells Christians, that means your very presence on the earth as a Christian is stopping Satan from unleashing the Antichrist. Every time Satan reaches into his back pocket and wants to throw the Antichrist into the world the Holy Spirit puts his hand up like a police officer, holds him back, restrains him, and says, you can't do that because I am exercising my ministry of restraint through the church-age Christian, which explains the satanic hatred for Christianity in the world. It explains all of it. I mean, why is it that, you know, they throw the Bible out of the schools, but the Quran and the humanist manifesto and all that stuff comes into the school? Boy, that's an unfair, that's an unfair standard. Well, it's happening because Satan knows who the problem, what the problem is. It's the Christian in the world that's hindering his program. The Christian in the world has been hindering Satan's program for 2,000 years. So you might wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, boy, my life doesn't matter that much. I don't count. I'm not accomplishing anything. That's when you remind yourself, well, wait a minute. I am important because my very presence on planet Earth is stopping the devil. You know, in his tracks. So if the restrainer holds back the Antichrist... If the restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is permanently indwelling all Christians, then something has to happen before the man of lawlessness can make his debut into the world scene. The restraint has to stop. Back to verses 6 and 7. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This restraint will continue until he, Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. So if he's restraining the Antichrist through the Christian in whom he permanently indwells, and the day is going to come where his ministry of restraint will stop, who else has to be taken out of the way if he's in me forever? You have to be taken out of the way. I have to be taken out of the way. Well, when's that going to happen? The rapture. Once the rapture happens, restraint is gone. And then Satan can do what he's wanted to do for 2,000 years. Unleash his man into the world. Because the unique ministry of restraint will be over. Now let me just correct a common error. People think, okay, if that's, if that's all true, then the Holy Spirit will not be active in the tribulation period. He will be active. We know he'll be active because there's going to be more people saved in the tribulation period than any other time in history. Just read Revelation 7. That can't happen without the Holy Spirit. But Pastor, you just told us that he will be taken out of the way. Well, what I said was, what will be taken out of the way is not the Spirit, but his unique ministry of restraint. That ends. But the Holy Spirit will continue to work. Just like he did in Old Testament times. But he's still there. You're kind of rolled back to a situation like it was in the prior age where the Spirit would come upon people and could leave people, something that the Spirit cannot do currently. The Holy Spirit can't just disappear because he's not just omnipotent as God, but he's omni what? Present. That's why David in the Psalms says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to this place, you're there. You can't get rid of the Holy Spirit. What What will stop is his unique ministry of restraint that he's performing in the church age. This becomes the explanation on why the Christian should not overdose on speculating who the Antichrist is. Because he can't even come forward until the rapture occurs. Christians have been speculating on that from the beginning of the church age, unfortunately. Here's a very early church father named Irenaeus in his Against Heresies. Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John. That's how close Irenaeus is to the original apostles. He says, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positive positively as to the name of the Antichrist. But if it had been necessary to announce his name plainly at the present time, it would have been spoken by him who saw the apocalypse. That would be John for it. The apocalypse, the book of revelation was not, seen long ago, but almost in our own time, at the end of the reign of Domitian, that would be at the end of the first century. So what was happening in the days of Irenaeus is people were sort of playing, you know, pin the tail on the Antichrist. Everybody's trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And Irenaeus says, knock it off, because if we're supposed to know who he is, John would have given us his name yeah but i think it's domitian well why didn't john say that then i think it's nero why didn't john say that then i think it's adolf hitler why didn't john say that then i think it's uh, klaus schwab and the world economic forum why didn't john say that then the, the truth of the matter is nobody knows until the restrainer is removed see that the first president i voted for was ronald reagan And everybody told me I just voted for the Antichrist because Ronald has six letters in it. Wilson, his middle name, has six letters in it. Reagan, his last name, has six letters in it. And so ever since that point in time, very early in my spiritual journey, people are always trying to point out who the Antichrist is. Um, Gorbachev came along with that head mark that he had, you know, that birth thing. And, well, that's, look, the mark on the forehead, there it is, you know. And then Saddam Hussein came and went, everybody thought he was the Antichrist. And finally, in 1992, I think it was, a guy named Bill Clinton showed up. And everybody said, well, that's the Antichrist. And by then I had wised up. I said, Bill Clinton is not the Antichrist. People said, well, how do you know? Because Daniel 11 says the Antichrist will not have the desire of women. (laughs) And so Clinton didn't qualify. But the truth of the matter is nobody knows exactly who the Antichrist is. People say, well, could he be alive today? Yeah, but I think he's been alive for 2,000 years. Because Satan has always had a man waiting in the wings. That's why so many people look like they could be the Antichrist. I mean, Nero perhaps was waiting in the wings. Should the restraint be removed? Because Satan, not being omniscient, doesn't know when the restraint is going to end. Hitler could have been the Antichrist. You look at people on the world stage today. You look at him you say, wow, that, that guy would be a terrific Antichrist. We've even had some presidents recently that seem like they're auditioning for the role, you know. But the truth of the matter is nobody can know because nobody knows when the restraint is going to be removed. The Antichrist has always been here in different personages. Satan is just is just waiting for the green light. So what what's my point? Why bring up all this? Well, we're focusing on the immediate context. Verse 1. Rapture. Verses 6 and 7. Rapture. So if the rapture is in verse 1, and the rapture is also in verses 6 and 7, and the word apostasia can mean departure from the word or departure from the world, both definitions are acceptable, Depending on context, and verse one is the rapture, and verses six and seven is the rapture, then, then what's the big deal seeing the rapture in verse three? That's Paul's subject matter. The 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 apostasia is the rapture. It's a synonym for the rapture. Well, you can't force that into the context, not forcing anything into the context. That's what the context is dealing with. That's his primary concern in the first letter which dovetails very nicely with the second letter, and that's his primary concern in this paragraph. Verse 1, concerning our gathering together to him, that's the rapture. Verses 6 and 7, the restrainer being removed, taken out, that's the rapture. So right sandwich in the middle is verse 3, apostasia, which could mean a de- physical departure or a departure from the word. I'm going to pick the meaning that fits this context. The apostasia is the departure from the world. What is Paul's point? You're not in the day of the Lord, Thessalonians, in spite of the forgery that you have received from allegedly coming from me. Because the departure that I already told you about when I was with you and I already told you about in the first letter hasn't happened yet. If you're still here, you're not in the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is preceded first by the departure. That's his point. A lot of people um, will see verse 3 in what's called synonymous Hebrew parallelism with verses 6 and 7. What is synonymous Hebrew parallelism? It's Jewish poetry. Our poetry rhymes sounds. The Jews did not rhyme sounds. They rhymed ideas. That's why when you're studying Jewish writings, you have to look at two lines and try to figure out how those two lines relate to each other. And there is something in Jewish poetry called synonymous Hebrew parallelism, where the second line repeats the information in the first line, but in different words. So in Psalm 50, verse 10, God says, every beast of the forest is mine. That's line one. And then he says, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does God own the cattle on the thousand hills? Yes, he does. Does he own the cattle on the thousand and first hill? Yes, he does. Because the cattle on a thousand hills is in synonymous Hebrew parallelism with the phrase every beast. So there 1,000, there's a context for taking 1,000, and it doesn't even say 1,000, it just says a 1,000 non-mathematically because you're dealing with synonymous Hebrew parallelism. There are a lot of commentators that see verse 3a, the departure in synonymous Hebrew parallelism with verses 6 and 7. Verse 3a and verses 6 and 7 are saying the exact same thing, but in different words. So that becomes another argument that you can use, you know, demonstrating that Paul is dealing with the rapture here in the immediate context. Eighth reason why the physical departure view works, I'll try to get through this quick. Paul is giving a review course here. Because what people say is, why didn't Paul, if he was talking about the rapture in chapter 2, 3a, why did he use the word apostasia instead of the word harpazo? If he used the word harpazo, it would have made it clear, other than this strange term apostasia, that he was again talking about the rapture. And the basic answer to that is Paul, um, I mean, why does he use Harpazo, First Thessalonians 4.17, but Apostasia in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3? The answer to that is Paul has a sophisticated vocabulary. I mean, we all understand Paul was a pretty smart guy, amen? You can't limit his vocabulary to one or two words. These are all of the different words that I'm aware of, and there are probably more that he uses to describe the rapture. Sometimes he'll use the word parousia, meaning the coming of Christ. Sometimes as in verse one, he'll use the word epi as in gathering. Sometimes he will use the word apocalypse as in unveiling. Sometimes he will use the word epiphania as in epiphany. Sometimes he'll use the word ruhomai as in rescue. Sometimes he'll use the word harpazo as in caught up. So why can't we have another word? I mean, if he uses all those other words, why can't he use yet? Uh, what is that? One, two, three, four, five. If those are six different words, why can't he use the seventh word? Why can't he use apostasia? Why can't Paul use that? So, so coming to this verse, and I've heard, I mean, big, big time people that you know. I mean, one of them you hear on the radio all the time. This person, although pre-tribulational, is very much against this apostasia view. And this person says, well, you know, Paul could have easily used the word harpazo if he wanted to make that clear. Well, I say to that argument, nonsense, because Paul has a sophisticated vocabulary. You cannot confine Paul to a word or two. By the way, if we're going to insist on the word harpazo before we see the rapture, then what do you do with the two witnesses in Revelation 11 and verse 12 who are caught up to heaven? Now this is post-rapture in the tribulation period. They're caught up to heaven. They kind of have their own rapture. And yet the word harpazo is not used. What do you do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58? which is, other than the Thessalonians passage, a clear reference to the rapture. Well, you can't accept that passage as a rapture passage either because it doesn't have the word harpazo. So what is happening here by the time we read 2 Thessalonians is Paul is reviewing material already covered. That's the significance of verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? We pick up the conversation late after all the groundwork has already been laid when he was with them on missionary journey number uh, two, I think it was, and also when he wrote to them First Thessalonians. When a teacher reviews for the test at the end of the semester. He does not reteach the whole class from basics. He builds on a knowledge base that the students have and sometimes will use different vocab words that better summarize the material. That's all that Paul is doing here. That's why he uses this word apostasia. He doesn't have to use the word harpazo because he already taught him that. Now he's now he's using a different word. And so that becomes an eighth reason why I think the physical departure view works. The extended context favors physical departure. The immediate context favors physical departure. And second Thessalonians chapter two, verse two is just a review course. And then we'll pick it up with numbers 9 and 10 uh, next time. Uh, let me pray. And I think you're on your way out, Brother Jim. Set up some booklets somewhere back there. I guess on the table. Yeah, the table right where Ed Jones is is seated. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth. Help us to grow in these things and not be confused, thrown to and fro as many are in a state of confusion in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Happy intermission.